Hi, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. We are back. Whether you're listening while battling the traffic en route to the lake, or if you're already relaxing at the end of the dock, I'm delighted to welcome you back to another season of the Cottage Life podcast, where we'll be chatting about all things cottage related, from the environment to entertaining, real estate to wildlife. It's great to be back for season four. In this episode, I'll be chatting with renowned climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe. In a recent issue of Cottage Life, Catherine shared her perspective on how we can think about the climate crisis without giving up hope. And she's here with me today to help you do the same. Then we'll listen to an essay from the pages of the magazine, this one written by Wayne Grady. After years of renting, Wayne's search for his own piece of cottage country set in motion something of an existential crisis for him. He wondered, how can you find a corner of unspoiled wilderness and not spoil it just by being there? Before we get to all that, though, here's a word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I've spent a lot of time on the trail, and every backwoods trip is a chance to learn something new. And the most important lesson I've learned is that when you're in nature, you have to be ready for anything. And that's why you'll never see me in the woods without my off deep woods insect repellent. It's non-greasy, it doesn't stain, and it uses DEET for up to eight hours of protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Pack it for your next big adventure and you'll be ready to embrace the trail without any distractions. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist who serves as the Global Chief Scientist for Nature United. She's also a professor at Texas Tech University and author of the book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. A lifelong Muskoka cottager, Catherine wrote an essay for the recent June-July issue of Cottage Life, Long Range Forecast, in which she talked about how we can feel empowered to fight climate change. She's here with me now to talk more about that and to share the ways in which she finds hope in the face of the climate crisis. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hayho. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's a delight. I, uh, I absolutely loved reading your words in uh, Cottage Life and seeing you, you know, in all sorts of other places. And we really feel honored to have such an expert here with me today. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I do want to ask you about what we can do specifically, particularly at the Cottage to Fight Climate Change. But I was also hoping that before we get to that, you could tell us a little bit about how you became an atmospheric scientist. And I know in your article, you talked about the very real role that your background as a cottager played in sort of your career path. So I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So like so many of us, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Etobicoke in Toronto, um, which is a very urban area. But every summer I was fortunate enough to be able to spend up at the cottage where my family's been going for multiple generations. And so that's where every day was absolutely immersed in nature, whether it was the woods or the water rising with the sun, going to bed at night, and even looking to see whether it was going to rain tomorrow based on the color of the sky or the direction of the wind. So it was really a unique experience to understand how truly embedded in nature all of us are, because often in our day-to-day -day lives with our air conditioning and our cars and our um, homes, we forget the fact that we all live on this planet, 
that it provides literally the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, all of the resources we use, and we depend on nature for our very lives. That's a really important lesson that I feel like many of us, including me, are in danger of forgetting. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting there is as cottagers, that is the reason we go to the cottage, right? To get closer to nature, just as you were saying. Um, but I have found, and I think every cottager would, would admit to it, that you know, as time goes by, we bring in more creature comforts to our cottages and cottaging in general has become sort of more urban in a way, you know, we have air conditioning, whereas, you know, you wouldn't, that was, that seems like a newfangled thing for the cottage in some ways. So it's an interesting point you're making for cottagers specifically, who in fact go to the lake for nature and then end up cutting themselves off from it in ways that they're probably not even conscious of. It's true. Well, I will say our family's cottages do not have air conditioning, but <laughs> as our summers are getting warmer and warmer, it's getting a lot more difficult to sure. sleep at night because we yeah. are seeing heat waves earlier in the year and more extreme heat in the summer. And so air conditioning is a form of adaptation that many of us have the ability to use, but many people around the world who are disproportionately affected by these impacts, who live in low-income countries who didn't even contribute to the problem, they don't even have this available to them as an option. So that in and of itself really brings climate change into the conversation immediately. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing I'm sort of curious to talk to you about, I'm, I'm sure like you're talking to someone right now and a great deal of our audience, I'd say the vast majority, we believe that climate change exists. Like we know that it's a thing, but there are some people, and I'm sure you encounter them all the time, who actually don't even believe it. They, and even in the face of all of this overwhelming evidence, scientific evidence, so what do you say to people like that? How do you how do you talk to people who are so far away? It's like they don't care about what adaptations they can make to fight climate change if they don't believe in it. So how do you, how do you get those people on board with your message? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize that although these people exist and they are very loud, their voices are very loud and I run into them every single day on social media. Mm -hmm. You see them in the comment section of newspapers. You see people um, sharing information that you know isn't true. When you actually look at how many people are what I call dismissive, people who will dismiss any piece of scientific evidence, it's only a tiny fraction of the population. In the United States, it's about 10% of the population. In Canada, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but a little bit less than that. But their voice is disproportionately emphasized on social media, in the comment sections of online articles, and sadly, even in politics today. So the absolute numbers aren't that large. Well, what are most of us? It turns out most of us are worried. The vast majority of us are worried. About three quarters of us in Canada, about 70% of people in the US are already worried about climate change, but only a tiny fraction of us are activated actually doing something about it. So the biggest gap is not between people who say, yes, it isn't, or no, it isn't true. The biggest gap is between all of us who are worried, but we don't know what to do, mm. and people who are actually digging in, rolling up their sleeves, and actually doing something. So that's what a lot of my work focuses on, is not trying to convince the Uncle Joe and the family. And, you know, a lot of us have an uncle or yeah. a, you know older relative or neighbor or colleague. It's not about convincing that one person. Those aren't the most important conversations to have. Many of those people will go to their graves saying that it isn't real. 
the most important conversations to have are with others who are worried, who say, sure, it's real. You know, did you see the latest study that just came out saying that sea levels rising faster or ticks are moving into Canada or those wildfires are burning more area out west and out east now yes, in than they used to. But but at the same time, they're not engaging with their community, the place they work, the place they live, the school the kids attend. They're not engaging in solutions. That's where the conversations are most important. So let me just put that out there first, because yeah. all too often we end up spending all of our emotional resources on Uncle Joe, when yeah. really it's much more important to talk to everybody else. Yeah. But then with the Uncle Joes of the world, what we have to realize is 99.9% .9 of the time, their objections are not rooted in questioning the science. They are rooted in solution aversion. They don't want to fix it because they've been told the only solutions to climate change are diametrically opposed to their identity. They might be conservative and they're told the only solutions are liberal or socialist. Right. They might, you know, believe in uh, or, be, or be very, very um, committed to economic gain. They might be told that the only solutions are going to, you know, lose us money. Or they might be, and this is more common in the U.S., but we see this in Canada too. They might be all about personal liberties and they're being told that climate solutions will take away their truck their right to do this, their right Our to do gas that. gas-fired their... stove is a, a recent one. Oh, yes, their gas-fired stove, yeah. their ability to eat a steak. So it's all couched in terms of loss and they don't want to do that. But here's right. the thing. If I say, sure, this is a real problem. It's already affecting people today. It's affecting the poor and vulnerable more than anyone, whether they live on the streets in Halifax or in you know um, Madagascar on the other side of the planet. But I don't want to fix it. That makes me a bad person. And most of us don't want to perceive ourselves or have others perceive us as a bad person. So what our brain does is it kicks in subconsciously mostly, and it says, well, you're not a bad person, but you don't want to fix climate change. So therefore there must be good reasons. Let's go out and find the good reasons why you don't want to fix climate change. That's actually called motivated reasoning. It's where we decide ahead of time what we think. And then we use our brain, which in many cases is very smart to go out and look for or the reasons to justify why we don't want to fix it. So we come up with these reasons that the internet helps us find, like it's just a natural cycle, or it's the sun, or it's volcanoes, or the planet's getting greener, or it's too expensive anyways, we'll just adapt. And we use these as excuses. But here's the problem. When we engage with this person and, and addressing their surface level excuses, you say, well, no, it's not a natural cycle because natural cycles just move heat around the climate system. They don't make it get warmer. Then they'll just pop up with another objection. It's like the whack-a-mole game at the CNE. Yeah. You yes. whack one mole, another mole pops up. And before you know it, you're covered in sweat and exhausted because you whack 35 moles and number 36 is popping up. <laughs> so you got to realize that it isn't about the surface level. What is going on underneath is they don't think that we can fix it. So what's the best thing to talk about with those 10% or less who are dismissive is what real solutions look like that have benefits that they can appreciate today, as well as benefits for climate tomorrow. And in my book, Saving Us, I actually talk about one of my friends, John, who his dad was fairly dismissive on climate change, but he ended up saving so much money on his solar panels ah. that... He completely changed his mind on climate change because he was part of the solution now. And it was consistent with his identity as a fiscal conservative. Right. So it's sort of like identity politics, essentially, is what the what the answer is there. So how about this then? 
because I think there's another element of people, and I am somewhat embarrassed to say that I am sort of in this portion. When I say I wake up every morning and I listen to the news, 6.30 in the morning on the CBC News, and there's almost now weekly a conversation about some st study that has come out um, a couple of weeks ago was about how you know, we're actually warming much faster than the models even predicted and, you know, we're even more trouble. I hear that and I, I just, I shut down. I'm so terrified that I feel like all hope is lost and therefore, not that I'm not going to change my behavior. I feel I'm already doing lots of things. Like I cycle, for example. I mean, I, I could tell you a million things that I feel I do that help, but it certainly doesn't, when I hear stuff like that, it actually doesn't motivate me to, to, push harder in a way it actually just makes me want to curl up in a ball and ignore it all and I think that's a form of you know inaction that is really um harmful really at the end of the day because it is the the scale of the problem is such that we need to all be actively fighting it we need to actively be making changes to our lifestyle so doing nothing curling up in a ball is kind of just the same as doing the bad thing right so so how do you work with those people to say here's the hope here's how you move forward even though you feel terrified does that make sense oh my goodness yes it does you expressed that so well and what you expressed i have heard from thousands of other people in fact i would say what you expressed is the majority perspective of most people Mm -hmm. that we know it's real, we hear the disasters, and we think, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I'm mm -hmm. not a president, prime minister, CEO, Instagram influencer. You know? yeah, yeah, all of the above, yeah. Right, exactly. none of the above. Yeah. What am I supposed to do? And you, you see it, and, and I picked this up in what you said, which is not only is there the fear and the sense of helplessness, but then there's another toxic emotion that we ourselves are piling right on top. And I heard a hint of that in what you shared, which is guilt. We yeah. then feel guilty yes. for letting ourselves be paralyzed by this fear. Yes, yes, 100% yes. I'm in therapy right now. That's the exact truth, Catherine. <laughs> so, so what do I do with that? Well, first of all, I want to say what you are feeling is completely normal and it is completely rational. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's happening to this world, fear and anxiety is a rational response. Mm -hmm. Not feeling that is not rational. Right. So that, that's, first of all, just realizing that we are not crazy. We are not overreacting. We are facing the biggest change our planet has ever seen. As far as we can go back into the distant millions of years history of our planet, we haven't seen anything happen this fast before. Yes, we've seen it be warmer or colder, but it's never happened this fast. And the problem is... We humans with 8 billion people on the planet, we can't adapt as fast as we're changing the planet. And that is really scary. We're conducting an unprecedented experiment with our only home in the entire universe. So that's where we need to start is saying, if, if that's the way you feel, first of all, it is rational. And second of all, you are not alone. I have asked thousands of people attending my talks over the last two years. I started doing this right when my book came out, Saving Us. The very first talk I gave was to a group of mothers at a science museum. And I thought, well, just out of curiosity, I want to know how do they feel? Because I'm writing this book specifically to answer the question, what gives you hope? And don't worry, we will get there. <laughs> um, but, but do people actually need hope? So I said, when you think about climate change, how do you feel? Give me one word. And I used an online polling tool, PollEV, where people could just enter a word from their cell phone without any identifying you know, markers. So people could just be totally frank. And the words I got from that group of moms at the, at the museum was 
sad, depressed, paralyzed, anxious, frustrated, angry, overwhelmed. And then I asked the next group I talked to, a group of healthcare professionals from Ontario, same words. A bunch of architects from the Midwest, same words. A bunch of Catholic nuns from upstate New York, same words. University professors from UC Berkeley, same words. I've talked to people wow. all around the world. I get the same words. 95% of the words I get from people are negative. So that's really important to realize that you are not alone. If you feel that way, know that most other people feel that way. Mm -hmm. And then we have to realize that, and this addresses the guilt, where does the fault lie? I don't think it does lie with us because neuroscientists have shown, and there's a really interesting book called The Influential Mind by a neuroscientist called Tali Sherratt. And I was reading it as I was writing my book because I wanted to understand how our brains work. Mm -hmm. And she says, our brains, our human brains are wired to be paralyzed by fear. Now we have a knee-jerk reaction. If there's a bear running at us, you know, our knee-jerk reaction, that shot of adrenaline makes you run faster, right? Or grab your child out of the way or perform, you know, temporary extreme events. But in general, long-term fear, which is what climate change is, paralyzes us. That is the hardwired reaction in our brain. We are wired, she says, to move towards something that is good, but to move away from or just to freeze when we're confronted with something that's bad. And that is like actually evolutionary programming in our brain. Right. So do not feel guilty about it because this is just the way we're wired as humans. And so where does the fault lie in this communication? In my opinion, the fault lies in those who are communicating this information because they're assuming that if we aren't activated, it's because we're not worried. But if they just look at the polling data, they'll realize, no, we're all worried but we just aren't activated. And it's not because mm -hmm. we need more worry. In fact, heaping more worry on us by telling us more bad news about the polar bears, the ice sheets, global temperature, sea level rise, more bad news will paralyze us even more. And so the onus is really on communication. And, and I spent a lot of time talking, not just to reporters, but to editorial boards about right, how right. important it is to share positive information. Of course, we have to understand the risks. Don't get me wrong. It's like a coin. There's two sides. One side, here's what's happening and what's at risk, not just over there on the other side of the world, but where you live to things that you care about, like your cottage yeah, or your kids or your health or your home or your job or the city you live in or the thing that you enjoy doing. You know, there's plenty of articles about how climate change is affecting tennis or golf or skiing. Yeah. Skiing you know? is a big one. Yeah. Yes. So that's one half. But equally, we have to be communicating what the solutions look like and how people at every level can engage. And so let me tell you kind of a fun story. Um, I was exhorting um, folks at the New York Times about this a while ago. And mm -hmm. so one of the reporters said, okay, well, I'm going to try this. I'm going to look for a positive story. So she was walking to work and she saw in New York City, this little piece of nature in a tiny little pocket front yard in the middle of New York City. It was a pollinator-friendly garden with all kinds of native species. And she thought, this is so unusual. I'm just going to ask. So she knocks on the door and she says, excuse me, I couldn't mind noticing your garden. Um, can you? Is there a story to it? And the man said, who answered, he said, yes. He said, I am an ecologist. 
I'm very worried about climate change. And I'm also a Catholic who believes that we are called to be good stewards of nature or God's creation. And so I decide the best thing I could do is be a good steward of the nature, the ground that I had. And so that's why I made this pollinator friendly garden. And so she wrote the article, published it up, and it had some of the highest levels of shares and engagements of any article they published on climate change, because finally people felt like they could see themselves in a climate solution. So in a nutshell, where do we find hope? We find it in recognizing that we have something to contribute to the solution. In action is where we find hope. And often the action comes first and the hope comes second. So you heard that story about the ecologist with the pollinator garden in New York City reminds me of one of my favorite saying that I say to my kids all the time. And it's, uh, do you think you're too small to make a difference? You've never been in a tent with a mosquito, which I, I love that because it's good, right? Because that's what it is. It's like every little bit does count. And I appreciate everything you just said. You made me feel so much better as a person, but also I'll say um, as a journalist, because at Cottage Life, you know, we see what you're talking about firsthand when it comes to content and creating content. On our um, website, we're often publishing stories about, you know, uh, recent studies that, you know, are reporting, you know, terrible news about the climate. We put that online and no one clicks on it. And we are sort of left thinking, well, it's our responsibility to convey this information. So the whole reason we actually came to you to begin with to be in our magazine is because we wanted to sort of have this new column, we call it Forces for Nature, which is presenting that, yeah, it's bad, but you can do this, you know, you can you can bring hope to the situation. So you just articulated that perfectly, and I appreciate it. Um, two, two things to, to add on to that. Yes, please. Um, and that is, well, first of all, you're exactly right, and that's why I, just, I started a newsletter last year. And the newsletter has three sections in it. It has a section on good news up top that's color-coded green. And then it has a section on not so good news below that talks about relevant ways that climate change is affecting us. It's color coded red so people can skip it. Uh -huh. And then it's got a section at the bottom, blue, what you can do. And I think that that's the perfect pairing is here's why it matters to us, but here's some great news that's happening. And then here's something that we can do to fix it. Love that. Okay. So we're, I'll get that, uh, the name of your newsletter. What's the name of it? Um, it's just called Talking Climate with Catherine Hayhoe, and it's on my website. You just go to the website and subscribe. And then there's one other thing I wanted to also mention too. On the topic of guilt, it's so big that I actually wrote a whole chapter on it on my book. And there's another writer, uh, Mary Hegler, who is just phenomenal on this topic. She's an environmental reporter. She's black. She lives in Louisiana. She copes with issues in, of environmental justice, of shocking lack of access to basic healthcare facilities or clean water. And then these are the communities that are most being impacted by climate change. So she wrote this essay a little while ago that was so impactful. It just hit me like right in the chest speaking about guilt. I feel like she communicated so clearly how we guilt ourselves and how that guilt, in addition to the fear, is a double whammy in terms of paralyzing ourselves. So if you don't mind, I'd just like to read you a little bit from that essay because yeah, I think please. she just says it so well. She says it better than I could. Um, so it's an essay she wrote um, some time ago um, for Vox that says, I work in the environmental movement. I don't care if you recycle. And what she says is that when she shows up at a dinner party and she tells people that she is an environmental reporter, they often immediately start to confess their green sins to her as if she were some sort of eco-nut. <laughs> And she fun. says, that's fun. <laughs> I know. She says, what I want to tell them is this. 
I want to tell them that they are carrying the guilt of the oil and gas industry, that the weight of our sickly planet is too much for any one person to shoulder. And when that blame paves the road to apathy, that will seal our doom. Wow. Wow. That is good. That's the kind of thing that I want to put in our newsletters and send it out every week. Yes, just put that quote at the top. Yeah, so we have exactly. to we have to fight our guilt. Our guilt is yes, we are all part of the system, but we were born into it. We did not create the system. We did not ask to be part of the system, but by being within this system, we have proportionally greater ability to change the system. And that is where we find hope is in that action. Okay, awesome stuff. One more thing that you put in the article that I have told so many people since I saw it was your swimming pool analogy. It, I found it very empowering. So I wondered if you could explain that to our listeners. Yes. So often there's so much going on with climate solutions. It's really hard to sort of figure out what's this? Where does this fit in? Why does this matter? So the analogy I use is that of an above ground swimming pool. So I mentioned I grew up in Etobicoke. We had an above ground swimming pool in the backyard and my toes could just touch the ground in that swimming pool. If you think of the swimming pool like our atmosphere and the water is the heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. Before the industrial revolution, we had just the right amount of heat trapping gases in the atmosphere that were perfect to maintain life on earth. In other words, our toes just touched the bottom of the pool. But at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we stuck a giant hose into the pool, and we've been turning that hose up every year. That hose is our heat-trapping gas emissions, 77% of which come from burning coal, gas, and oil, and in industry. And then the remainder, 23%, uh, come from deforestation, land use change, and large-scale industrial agriculture. So we've been turning up that hose every year. Now, during the first year of the pandemic, we turned it down 7%, and then we just turned it right back up again. So people sometimes say, well, didn't the pandemic make a dent in climate change? It's like, no, it slowed it down 7% for one year. So the level of water in the pool is rising, and not only is it rising, it's rising faster and faster because each year more water is coming out of the hose. So when it comes to climate solutions, what do we have to do? There's three things. Number one, we have to turn off the hose. And clean energy, transitioning from coal, gas, and oil to clean energy sources that include hydro, wind, solar, geothermal, like people can use heat pumps in their homes, tidal energy, they're looking at that in the Bay of Fundy. All of those are ways to turn off the hose. But we can also turn off the hose through efficiency. We waste over half the food that we produce in Canada. Yeah, food waste is a thing I think that most people really don't think about because I think often too in the city we put our food waste into a compost bin which is great good compost yeah. it but 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 even still like that's a huge portion of it's such an easy thing that we can do it's such an easy thing eat the food you buy and don't waste it Yes. Um, in fact, just before COVID, I was giving a talk at one of our, our big uh, local churches in Southern Ontario, and I was talking about what we can do. And I was listening to people as they laughed, and I heard one of them tell her friend this. She said, I've always been worried about climate change, but I didn't know what to do. So I did nothing. But now wow. I know I can start by eating the Christmas leftovers. <laughs> it's just like, yes, you get it. So exactly. Do something, anything and talk about it and then do something more and talk about that. Right. So energy efficiency, 
um, turn, you know, turning off our computers, LED lights, uh -huh. clean energy, changing our behavior so we don't need as much energy. All of those are ways to turn off the hose. Right. But our swimming pool also has a drain. And that drain is nature. Nature wants to take up carbon from the atmosphere. We just have an imbalance. We have too much in the atmosphere. But if we can put it back in the soil or back in ecosystems, forests, grasslands, wetlands, it's an amazing fertilizer. And so if we can invest in nature, not only tree planting, but first of all, protecting the nature we have, number one, uh -huh. restoring the nature we have that's become degraded, number two. Number three is, yes, replanting and regenerating nature that got destroyed. Uh -huh. And then also climate smart agriculture. There's so many agricultural techniques that turn our, our way of growing food from a source of heat trapping gases into a sink through regenerative agriculture, no-till agriculture, biochar, all kinds of different ways we can do, especially in Canada. That's our greatest potential in Canada to make the drain bigger is through regenerative agriculture. So we have to do that, but there's one more thing we need to do. The level of water in the pool is already so high that our toes don't touch the ground. We have to learn how to swim. That's called mm -hmm. adaptation. Mm -hmm. Redesigning our infrastructure so that it's prepared for those more extreme conditions. Making sure that we can still have water, that we can still grow food, that our ecosystems and forests are still protected in a warmer world. We have to turn off the hose, make the drain bigger, and learn how to swim. And the more we do of all three of those, the better off we'll be. I mean, I just, I almost have shivers hearing you say that because it really makes sense on a personal level. And I think especially for cottagers, like, make a natural shoreline and plant a pollinator garden and put in a composter and switch to solar. And those are all things that you can really do. Like they're really, they're really achievable goals for most cottagers. Yeah. So something that you spoke about again in your article that I also found gave me hope uh, was the idea of something that I love to do, which is talk, talk about it, talk. So go, go deeper into that. So, Individual actions are important, but how do we change a whole system? It turns out that we humans are embedded in this system, and the way that we change our society is through communicating, through talking about it. That is how every social revolution in the past began. It began by people taking action consistent with their values, but communicating that action to others. It's the most amazing catalyst that makes our actions truly contagious in a positive way. And scientists have even measured this. So for example, the number one predictor of whether somebody has solar panels on their roof is if somebody else within about a kilometer or two of their home has them too. Totally. So when we do something, like you just mentioned, creating a pollinator-friendly garden, restoring our lakeside wetlands, um, transitioning to clean energy, insulating our cottage better, Whenever we do something, it obviously matters because every action counts. That's what the science says. But when we use our voice to share what we're doing with other people around us, our friends, our family, or changes that we can make in the place where we work or the school that our kids attend or the neighborhood we live in, we amplify the impact of our actions tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. And that is truly how each of us as individuals has the power to change the world. Whew. It's funny, you're talking about heat pumps just a minute ago or a while back. We have, we're working right now on an article to go in our summer issue about putting in a heat pump at the cottage. And it occurs to me, like as I was reading it, 
I don't know anyone who has a heat pump at their cottage. Maybe, maybe a story isn't really, maybe this isn't really what cottagers do. But then you say that and I think, well, we suggest it and one person does it, then maybe for the whole side of the lake will do it. And then we are making a cumulative change that is effective, which I think is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, um, I live in an area where there's the cottages are very old, so most of them don't have HVAC systems. But there is definitely a trend for the newer cottages, first of all, and then even for some of the older cottages, as people start to spend more time there and as the summers get hotter, to put in some type of HVAC system. So if they're considering something new that they don't currently have, then they should absolutely know about heat pumps. So what yes. you're doing is you're almost, you're addressing the hose and learning to swim at the same time because you're helping people figure out how to adapt to a changing world, but to do so in a way that doesn't make more water come out the hose. Right. Catherine, this has been awesome. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your words in the magazine. I think readers uh, you know, will get such a positive feeling of action and hope, and that's just what we wanted. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much again for having me, Michelle. Now, another word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I get a lot of questions from Cottage Life readers about my favorite gear for having fun at the cottage. And I always tell them that one of my favorite cottage experience doesn't require any gear at all. Just a dark sky on a clear night. But when you're stargazing at the cottage, there's one thing that you'll definitely need. Off Family Care Insect Repellent, smooth and dry. It protects you and your family for up to five hours against mosquitoes, and it never feels oily or greasy. It also repels ticks, black flies, deer flies, and biting midges. Use it the next time you're savoring the night sky, and you won't be tempted to head indoors before you see a shooting star. Wayne Grady is a Kingston, Ontario-based writer and longtime contributor to Cottage Life. After renting a cottage for a time on a quiet lake, he and his wife decided it was time to buy. He wrote this essay for our March-April 2021 issue that recounts that endeavor and asks one of the most basic questions of cottage living. If you buy a piece of the wilderness and build a home there, are you ruining the thing that you came there for to begin with? In Search of No Man's Land is read by Pedro Mendez. We missed the for sale sign the first time we passed it. It was nailed to a tree a few feet in from the road. When I pulled over to park, a large boulder dislodged itself from the roadbed and scraped the underside of our car. The seven-acre property near Perth, Ontario, was densely wooded, but once we scrambled through the understory lining the road, we emerged into an open forest of mixed hardwood and spruce, and we were able to walk easily down to the lake. We knew it as Long Lake, small, oval-shaped, about a kilometer from end to end, and with only three buildings on it, one of which was a log cabin that we had rented 20 years before for $2,000 a year. We called the real estate agent and told him we'd think about it. He advised us not to think too long. Like a lot of people in these pandemic days, when cities feel crowded and unsafe, my wife, Marilyn, and I have been thinking about buying country property. We've looked at a lot of land that hasn't been quite what we have in mind. We want something between wilderness and farmland, but close to the wilderness end of the continuum. Something that is still natural habitat. We know what farmland is. Before moving into the city, 
We lived in a 200-year-old farmhouse with 15 acres of bush, two acres of gardens, a dozen apple trees, and two dozen chickens. We tried to dwell as lightly, carefully, and gracefully as we could, to borrow environmentalist Bill McKibben's phrase. We grew most of our own food, but without plowing or fertilizing. Instead of excessive watering, we mulched our gardens. We heated with our own wood, winter stored our apples, and collected the windfalls for pressing cider. We tapped our maples for syrup and foraged on our property for wild leeks and morals. After 15 years of hard labor, we realized what Henry David Thoreau had understood 150 years earlier. A garden may be close to nature, but it isn't natural habitat. In Walden, Thoreau writes that he spent the growing season making the earth say beans instead of grass. We spent 15 years making our land say apples, potatoes, and daylilies instead of butternuts, trilliums, and staghorn sumac. Our forest and our gardens were artificial constructs that, in order for them and us to thrive, had to outcompete what wanted to grow there naturally. We aren't looking for wilderness. Even if we were, true wilderness no longer exists. The 1964 U.S. Wilderness Act defined wilderness as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. Now, when 4% of the dust particles on this continent are plastic, when the average temperature at the North Pole is 3 degrees Celsius higher than it was when ice covered it, and when, globally, the population of most wild species has declined by 68% in the last 50 years, it can be argued that there is nowhere left on the planet that hasn't been trammeled by us, nowhere that we have visited and not remained. There may once have been true wilderness somewhere, but we have lost it. Wilderness is now what environmental historian William Cronin describes, counterintuitively, as quite profoundly a human creation, existing only as the reflection of our own longings and desires. Which is the reason I actually prefer poet and environmental activist Gary Snyder's view. To him, wilderness is a place where the wild potential is fully expressed, a diversity of living and non-living beings flourishing according to their own sorts of order. His idea doesn't separate humans from the community of life. Within Snyder's diversity of living, there is a place for us. Marilyn and I aren't naive enough to think that we can live in a natural habitat without changing it. Although we have no intention of exporting the city into the country, in the form of septic systems, air conditioning, gas-powered generators, and noise, we understand what I call the observer effect of being in the wild. In physics, the observer effect states that you can't even passively observe a system without altering it. Margaret Mead famously applied the theory to anthropology. The mere presence of an observer near a remote people, she warned, alters their behavior in ways that the ethnologist wouldn't even notice. I feel the same way about natural systems. We are never simply passive observers of nature. Our presence in the natural world changes it. In the same way that an oak tree planted in the middle of a pine forest changes the nature of the forest, so our presence in the wild makes it slightly less wild. Humans have irrevocably changed the nature of the forest. And we're continuing to change it, almost always in negative ways. We can, however, make as few inroads on it as possible, literally and figuratively. We can find a relatively unspoiled piece of natural habitat and leave it relatively unspoiled. What we want is a piece of what realtors call 
vacant land, with its ecosystems and diversity of wildlife intact, and simply to ease into it. We want to understand and to accept the value of what is there. Any place anyone lives is called habitat. Maybe a place where everyone can live is called vacant land. The cabin Marilyn and I rented on Long Lake sat lightly, carefully, and gracefully in the woods. Built in the 1800s of white pine logs, it still did not have electricity or running water. I built an outhouse, we heated the cabin with wood, and in the winter, like Thoreau, I chopped holes in the lake ice for water. About the only thing our cabin had that Thoreau's didn't was a solar panel on the roof to keep our laptops charged. Geographically, it was only an hour from where we lived in the city, but it felt far from anywhere, which was almost as good. We spent several months in the cabin while I worked on a book about coyotes. One evening, I found myself writing with outrage about hunters who set leghole traps for them. Then I realized I had just set four mouse traps in the kitchen because white-footed mice were coming in and eating my granola. The contradiction stopped me in my tracks. We plugged the holes through which mice were entering, put our food in mouse-proof tins, and I dismantled the mouse traps. We grew more tolerant of porcupines, snapping turtles, and black rat snakes, and I finished my coyote book feeling that I had come closer to understanding what being in tune with nature meant. Now, we can't shake the feeling that we had and lost what we're looking for, that what we want now is a return. This feeling might define humanity's relationship to nature for the past hundred years. We had it, and we let it go. Is it too late to get it back? The evening of our inspection of the seven acres on Long Lake, Marilyn and I talked about it. It seemed right. It was quiet, unimproved, affordable. We knew the lake and the people who lived on it. We knew the wildlife we'd be sharing the land with. Porcupines, red squirrels, muskrats, snapping turtles, deer. A pair of ospreys had built a nest at one end of the lake, and at least two Caspian terns regularly cruised overhead and occasionally dove for fish. On the other hand, the property was only seven acres and close to one of the other cabins on the lake. That 20-foot drop to the water bothered me. The trees were second growth, maybe third, and there were no clearings, so we'd have to do a lot of cutting and grading to make an accessible building site. Were we too eager? Shouldn't we take a second look? The next morning, we called our agent and asked him to send us a copy of the survey. He called back and told us that the owners had already had more than a dozen offers, some from people in Toronto who had not even seen the property, and probably for well over the asking price. We'd hesitated and lost. But we'll keep looking. We know the place we're looking for exists somewhere. Cronin might be right when he says that wilderness exists only as a metaphor for what we have lost. But we can still find a place where humans and nature can coexist, where anyone can live who simply wants to share space with wildlife and allow natural processes to take place only minimally affected by us, where vacant land can remain vacant, even when we're living on it. That's it for this episode, the first one of season four. If you're enjoying the podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're enabling us to make this podcast. Podcast listeners get a special deal. 
Sign up today using the code cottagelife.com slash pod offer, and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of the Cottage Life logbook, a dedicated place to record all the moments that make cottage living so special. All of this for just $24.95. Here's that code again, cottagelife.com slash pod offer. And while I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast. That way, each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And if you're loving it, please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. Of course, Cottage Life is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Look us up and leave a comment if you're so moved. We always love to hear from you. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock.